0: <clears throat> and welcome to the uh, Federalist Society's program, "Mass Fraud in Mass Torts." Question mark. Don't forget the question mark. Um, our text for today is—pardon um, <coughs> me—is an article uh, forthcoming from Professor Lester Brickman, uh, who is, uh, where is seated over here on my right. Um, and uh, we have uh, uh, discussants uh, who are certain to take issue with aspects of it. Uh, we will give Professor Brickman about um, ten minutes. Uh, oh, sir, so maybe a little more than that. do we, we agree on fifteen minutes? Fifty. Fifteen minutes to uh, to uh, lay out his thesis. And I believe copies of the paper are available. Uh, then we will hear from uh, from our discussants, and then give Mr. Uh, Professor Brickman a uh, Uh, about 10 minutes for rebuttal, if he needs all of that, Um, and then open the floor to you all. Uh, Lester Brickman is uh, a professor of law at uh, Cardozo School of Law in New York City, where he teaches contracts and legal ethics. He's written extensively on legal ethics and on the contingency fee, uh, uh, particularly in recent years, and has a, a major work forthcoming <clears throat> on contingency fees in the near in, I think in the coming year, uh, he's written extensively on uh, the asbestos litigation, uh, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee and the uh, House Subcommittee on uh, considering that uh, legislation. He's a graduate of uh, Carnegie Mellon University, the University of Florida Law School, and has a master's degree in law from Yale. <clears throat> Our first commentator will be Professor Francis McGovern who was um, in the 70s and uh, even beyond among the first in the country to write extensively about alternative dispute resolution um, and uh, improvements in the litigation process that it might uh, uh, provide. He became an expert in uh, mass claim litigation, uh, such matters as uh, DDT exposure um, in Alabama, the, uh, the Dalcon Shield controversy um, and the sil- silicone um, gel breast implant in Um He's created computerized models on valuation of mass claims that in, uh, f- help facilitate settlements by uh, uh, parties that, uh, can, that uh, look at uh, the output of those models. And he's the co-author of, um, of two books, Successful Litigation Techniques and the Preparation of a Product Liability Case. Two More Books in Progress, Toxic Substances Litigation, and Alternative Dispute Resolution. Then we'll hear from uh, Joe Rice, Joseph Rice of Motley Rice, LLC in Charleston, uh, who is, I guess, best known for his role in crafting the uh, settlement, the so-called tobacco settlement, with which everyone is uh, more or less familiar, and we don't want to start eliciting views on that. Um, his experience also, though, extends to, uh, to asbestos litigation uh, and many other of these, uh, these major complex uh, nationwide litigations. He has uh, served on the faculty uh, at the Duke University School of Law uh, as a senior lecturing uh, fellow. He's taught classes at USC uh, and, um, in, and Duke on the art of negotiation. Then we'll hear from Patrick Hanlon at, um, at Goodwin Proctor LLP. Uh, here in Washington where he specializes in mass tort and other complex litigation. Uh, He's been working on the legislation that would replace, maybe I should should say would have replaced, um, the uh, current system for asbestos uh, litigation with a federal administrative compensation program. Um, He has uh, spoken uh, uh, extensively uh, in his field of expertise, uh, including at Stanford University's interdisciplinary uh, program on conflict resolution, and he's a founding co-sponsor of the uh, Brooklyn Cardozo Faculty Seminar on Mass Tort Litigation. He has um, new articles out. One is um, Asbestos Changes in the NYU Annual Survey of American Law, And Mr. Hanlon has his um, B.A. from Chicago, a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard, and a J.D. from the Harvard Law School, clerked for Judge Kaufman, then Chief Judge Kaufman um, in the Second Circuit. I am here uh, particularly because of my complete ignorance of the subject matter. As a tabula rasa, I'm uh, likely to make foolish uh, interventions, which, of course, uh, sometimes yield productive results, but often are just foolish interventions. Um, And so I will uh, minimize uh, my role until it comes time to uh, take your questions, at at which time I will just simply practice my skills as a traffic cop. Professor Brickman.
1: Thank you, Judge Ginsburg. Um, I'm going to deliver basically a, a 15-minute summary of the paper that um, has been made available to you, which is a a work in progress which I expect to continue to work on for the next several months. Um, As many of you know, last year, uh, a U.S. District Court judge, Janice Jack, described by National Public Radio as a bridge-playing, whiskey-drinking Clinton appointee who was a former nurse, fired a shot that is still reverberating around the mass tort world. Judge Jack was presiding over 10,000 claims of injury from exposure to silica dusts, claims which had been removed, as it turned out, improperly from state court to federal court, and then assembled into a multi-district litigation, a so-called MDL proceeding. The genesis of this MDL was a deliberate, if not brilliant, strategy undertaken by the defendants for reasons that may become apparent um, when I explain some of the details. Now, Judge Jack issued a report documenting pervasive fraud in the production of the medical evidence. The fraud was discovered only when Judge Jack permitted defendant manufacturers to extensively question the doctors who had diagnosed the alleged injuries and she ordered also the production of extensive records This may sound like standard operating procedure in a trial and so on, but it is not. Most judges would not have permitted the extensive discovery that she allowed. Indeed, this massive fraud would never have come to public attention, but for a courageous judge willing to, in effect, do what no other judge had done before her, put the tort system on trial. Judge Jack's report highlighted a glaring defect in our civil justice system, which is the widespread use of fraudulent medical diagnoses and scientific testimony in mass tort litigation and the lack of any effective mechanism to punish the fraudsters and thereby deter future instances of fraud. In her report, Judge Jack largely corroborated findings that I had published the previous year of fraudulent medical evidence produced and used in the course of asbestos litigation, non-malignant asbestos litigation, where litigants are recruited at mass screenings sponsored by lawyers. You have mobile x-ray vans in motel parking lots in local union headquarters churning out hundreds of thousands of x-rays, on an assembly line basis, which are read by a comparative handful of doctors, uh, perhaps 20, 25, read the bulk of them or have read the bulk of them. These specialized X-ray readers are called B-readers. They are selected by the plaintiff's lawyers. Now, the, the product of my research is to conclude that the product that these doctors are selling, that most of these doctors appear to be selling in exchange for millions of dollars a year in annual fees is a predetermined percentage of findings of disease ranging from 40 to 90 percent for the thousands of persons x-rayed. Each of these doctors, as I, as my uh, evidence indicates to me, uh, has a signature percentage which is the product that he is selling to lawyers. Independent medical doctors have found that upwards of 90% of the findings of disease are misdiagnoses, a euphemism, which is consistent with the outcome of most medical studies, which is that the prevalence of asbestosis, which is a lung disease resulting from extensive exposure and inhalation of asbestos dusts, is somewhere in the range of 1% to 4%. When these doctors are subpoenaed to produce Records of all of the x-rays that they've read and the diagnosis they have rendered in the entire asbestos or silica litigations, that is both the number of positive for disease and negative findings and that would indicate or reveal their signature percentages of positive findings, they refuse to do so and I think the reason is pretty apparent because this data amounts to smoking-gun evidence of fraud. Some plead the Fifth Amendment when asked about their diagnoses, which is a chilling thought, and when a doctor is asked about how he did his diagnosis, he says, I've declined to to, to testify on the grounds that may tend to incriminate me. Among the evidence of fraud that led Judge Jack to do what no other judge had ever permitted, was the revelation that almost 70% of the 10,000 claims, of silica claims, had previously filed asbestosis claims, which had been retreaded as silicosis claims, sometimes by the same doctor who had found asbestosis. When these X-rays, which had previously been read as indicating asbestosis, were reviewed for silicosis per the direct instructions of plaintiff lawyers, who tell the doctors, look for silicosis, or look for asbestosis, which itself is a violation of medical procedure. When they did the silicosis findings, they made no mention of asbestosis. Um, In some cases, you have the same doctor rereading the same X-ray, which he had previously read as asbestosis, now reading it as silicosis. Uh, In one uh, interlude before Judge Jack, when she was questioning Uh, Dr. Roy Heron, who has produced over 80,000 medical reports for use in asbestos litigation, she asked Dr. Heron, you read this x-ray previously as not just asbestosis, but an on pleural plaque, which means a very clear uh, almost a a layperson could see this in the x-ray, and now you say silicosis, you don't mention anything about the on pleural plaque. What happened to the asbestosis? Where did it go? And Dr. Heron said, I don't know. Um, Well, I know where it went. The silicosis cured the asbestosis. (laughs) Now, having both diseases is a phenomenon that is so rare that most pulmonologists have never seen a single such case. But almost 7,000 dual-disease claimants were appearing before Judge Jack, and I think on that basis alone, fraud is apparent, even by a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. Judge Jack concluded, "...it is apparent that truth and justice had very little to do with these diagnoses. Indeed, it is clear that the lawyers, doctors, and screening companies were all willing participants in a scheme to manufacture diagnoses for money, which I suggest is the equivalent of a finding of fraud." Substantially, the same fraudulent practices used to generate medical evidence for asbestos and silica litigations have been replicated in other mass tort litigations. For example, with regard to the diet drugs, FenFen, the popular name of FenFen, we have several law firms and about 10 entrepreneurial electrocardiogram companies called sonographers. Who spent millions of dollars to set up makeshift echo mills in hotel rooms and elsewhere to administer echocardiograms to users of, of the fenfen drugs? Uh, fenfen did cause injury. A few thousand users suffered heart valve injuries. There were several hundred deaths, but there were also several hundred thousand claims generated, or at least uh, close to a hundred thousand claims. Several uh, eighty, somewhere between eighty and a hundred thousand claims. Uh, Now, the claims were mostly generated by the screenings. To process these thousands of claims, a few cardiologists began mass-producing diagnoses in the same way as was done in asbestos litigation. A prominent Duke cardiologist uh, and a panel of medical experts that he assembled reviewed 968 sets of of electrocardiograms that had passed an audit procedure an audit procedure that was instituted when it became apparent to the presiding judge that thousands of bogus claims were being paid millions of dollars. Now, with regard to these approved claims where the echocardiograms had passed an audit procedure, the Duke cardiologist concluded that 70% of these approved electrocardiograms were either fraudulently administered or altered after the fact to show evidence of injury that was not there. And this this is why some have estimated in print that $6 billion has been paid out. That's about 70% of the billions paid out for the most serious claims. uh, For fraudulent claims, or claims at least that were in error, it went to claimants who weren't sick, and of course to their lawyers. Now screenings were also used by lawyers in the silicone breast implant litigation to gin up tens of thousands of claims of connective tissue and rheumatoid diseases that were supported by specious diagnoses by a few dozen doctors who were mostly referred by the lawyers. Cursory examinations, sometimes in lawyers offices which doubled as examining rooms, were done on an assembly line basis by cardiologists charging as much as $6,000 an exam and diagnosing more than 90% of the women with symptoms that would make them eligible for compensation. However, the National Academy of Sciences' Institute of Medicine concluded that, quote, there is no evidence that silicone breast implants contribute to an increase in autoimmune connective tissue diseases, and there is no link between implants and connective disease or rheumatic conditions, unquote. Nonetheless, More than $4 billion has been paid out by the manufacturers for connective tissue and autoimmune disease claims. Mold litigation is another example of a mass tort infected with large scale generation of fraudulent medical and scientific evidence. Mold is a ubiquitous fungus. Everyone is exposed to it. Some have the misfortune of being sensitive to outdoor molds. They get hay fever. But according to the American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine, current scientific evidence does not support the proposition that molds or the mycotoxins produced by molds, whether inhaled in school, home or office environments, adversely affect human health. Now the scientific evidence notwithstanding, mold litigation, a multi-billion dollar industry, proceeds because a small number of experts paid fees of as much as $10,000 a day regularly testify that mold causes a terrifying array of diseases ranging from lung cancer to cirrhosis of the liver. I suggest that the lessons to be drawn from these observations is that fraud works in these mass tort litigations. While there are ongoing federal investigations of silica and asbestos litigation in the Southern District in New York and of the Fen-Fen litigation in Philadelphia, it does not appear that federal prosecutors are prepared to step into the breach by indicting the doctors or the scientific experts involved in what I have described. This appears to be so because reasonable doubt is virtually inherent in a process that relies on a battle of the experts for evidence of fraud. Doctors and scientific experts are obviously well aware of their effective immunity from prosecution. These doctors and scientific experts do not need a get-out-of-jail card free because they already have a never-go-to-jail card. Solutions. Difficult. I think part of the solution has to be for judges to approach mass tort litigation with a healthy skepticism, in particular when mass claims have been generated by the type of litigation screenings used in asbestos, silica, fenfen and breast implant litigations. Integral to these litigation screenings are mass-produced medical services, which are manufactured for money, practices which flourish when courts insulate them from the extensive discovery. That Judge Jack permitted, as some courts continue to do. Another response, I think, would be to enact federal legislation that would allow defendants in mass tort litigations to petition a federal court to bring together thousands of individual claims filed in state and federal courts that could have been brought together into a class action to assemble them into an MDL proceeding for purposes of examining the medical evidence in support of the claims of disease and the medical slash scientific evidence of causation, that is the evidence linking the product to the disease. And finally, I think that that's a necessary but not sufficient approach. I also think that state and federal legislation is needed to empower prosecutors, to pierce doctors and scientific uh, experts effective immunity from criminal prosecution. I think drafting such Legislation to distinguish between legitimately disputed diagnoses or theories of causation and manufacturing medical or scientific evidence for money is a daunting task, but it's one that I think we have to undertake. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Professor Brickman.
0: Professor McGovern, what do you think?
2: I'm going to get up here because I can't see you all over there, if if you don't mind. Thank you very much. As a member of the Federalist Society, it's a pleasure to contribute, Um, although I will admit sitting next to a chief judge is okay, but sitting next to a traffic cop, I get kind of nervous. (laughs) (laughs)
1: uh,
2: My first thought on reading Lester's paper was what else is new. Um, When I was a uh, defense lawyer at Vincent and Elkins uh, a couple of lives ago, Uh, We would go up periodically to Marshall, Texas, and my good friend Scotty Baldwin, the plaintiff's lawyer up there, and he had some of the first asbestos cases. And there weren't any doctors up there that knew anything about uh, asbestosis, but Scotty had a very good bad back doctor. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) In fact, uh, the railroad companies moved the railroad tracks out of Marshall, Texas, because he was getting so much money in the FELA cases. And so his bad-back doctor diagnosed, I think Scotty had 50 or so uh, clients that were alleging that they had uh, asbestos-related disease. And so the bad-back doctor examined them and found all 50 of them for sure had uh, asbestosis. And so when uh, one, of, one of our lawyers was, was uh, cross-examining the doctor, he says, well, you're a bad-back doctor. I mean, how do you know anything about asbestos-related diseases? He says, well, I've diagnosed it 50 times. <laughs> Uh, I, I was just reading the, uh, the papers on the way up today. Uh, fraud, you've got hard fraud, soft fraud, claim inflation. Just Trent Lott says the insurance companies are engaging in fraud in the paper today um, down in, in Katrina land. There's an Iraq construction person. Uh, Harry Reid is uh, allegedly engaged in fraud in a land transaction. Stock options. Uh, Illinois political graph fraud, and I didn't even get to the sports page uh, in terms of the various instances of fraud. If you go through it, any time you have a large pot of money and a large number of people, you're going to have a fair amount of fraud. Personal injury insurance, one out of three claims. PD insurance, 10 to 30 percent of the of the claims, health care, 10 percent, go on and on and on. It's sort of like Yogi Berra's deja vu all over again. Back in the 70s and 80s, you had the clinical ecologists. I don't know, uh, Mark, you're too young for that. But for, for those of us that were around in that era, when you had these toxic waste sites, we had some of the similar problems. But it seems to me a more interesting question is, Is there something about mass torts that makes them fraud-friendly? And I'd like to suggest uh, five factors that you might just take into account briefly that implicate plaintiffs, plaintiff's lawyers, defendants, defense lawyers, courts, and scientists that may uh, add to the incubation of fraud in the context of, of mass torts. Number one, the propensity to sue. Personal injury cases, there's a much greater propensity to sue. I remember in the Dalcon Shield cases, uh, Judge Marriage was always fond of a particular story. Uh, this is Judge Marriage's story, not mine, uh, of a woman who had the Dalcon Shield IUD, and she was claiming that she was injured by the IUD. And at the time, there were any number of IUDs the Copper 7, the Tatum T, lots of others, and as she was pushed, you know, was it indeed the Dalkon Shield? She said, well, I should know. I took one three times a day. <laughs> the, there were something in the nature of an anticipated 50,000 claims. We got 300,000 that came in. So you have this propensity to sue. Second, the sheer numbers of claims, I think, leads to a qualitative, not just a quantitative, but a qualitative difference in the way in which lawyers and judges approach their strategies of litigation. What you see is there is a tendency on the part of uh, plaintiff's lawyers to pile all the chips on the table. There's a tendency on the part of defense lawyers to use the large numbers to slow down the litigation process. And then uh, a large number of judges will say, make my day, I'll show you, I can move these cases. So the sheer numbers affect the strategies on the part of those folks. Thirdly, there's a concept called elasticity. If you, I don't know any of you from, from New York, if you've ever been to bus driver school in New York City, rule number one, if you're in an accident, rule number one is close the back door. Because <laughs> what will happen is, oh, I'll get this string of people off the street that will end up making, I was on the bus, I was hurt in the uh some of you may remember the hyatt skywalk case in, in in kansas city more people file claims than could have fit into every hotel in kansas city um there are elastic mass torts and there are inelastic mass torts an airplane crash case tends to be an inelastic mass tort the only a certain number of people on the on the plane but where you've got the potential tobacco would be a good example where you've got the potential for large numbers of folks and you have scientific ambiguity in terms of the criteria by which you judge whether this is a legitimate plaintiff or not, you will find if you build a superhighway you will have a traffic jam. As Mark knows that's what I've been trying to suggest to judges. In these immature mass torts uh, if you try to aggregate them together you're going to end up having far more claims than you would, you would otherwise have. Uh, fourthly and this is kind of interesting. The way in which most defendants negotiate a settlement in mass torts creates problems. Typically, the defendant is interested in the total amount of money. That's all they care about is the total amount of money. But the three other issues you have to negotiate are the criteria, who qualifies, who doesn't, payment amounts for each set of criteria, and administration. Typically in the negotiations, the defendant wants to start with the number. They get the number, and then they kind of abdicate on the other issues. And so you get these real loosey-goosey criteria. You get high payments numbers, and the administration is controlled by the plaintiff's lawyers. So in the very first silicone gel breast implant settlement that was worked out, here's $4 billion, very loose criteria. You know, hello, guess what happened? You got far more claims that you could possibly pay with the $4 billion that qualified, and it had to be redone with, in effect, a 95 percent reduction in the amount of money that was paid uh, in, in accordance with the, with the grid. This is what happens. Uh, If, in in fact, you negotiate all these factors together with a realistic view of what the future is going to bring, then you've got a better chance of putting together a deal. Uh, I I would blame that negotiating strategy for a lot of the problems with some of the cases, such as the first silicone gel breast implant case. And fifthly and finally, claims resolution facilities. Um, Typically, the defendants abdicate their role in the claims resolution facilities say, we've paid our amount of money. It's all over. Here, you run it. And what happens is usually the trustees are relatively weak. Usually there's a telescope on them for their uh, transaction costs. They're trying to keep the transaction costs low. And there's an incentive to please people. So if you look at FinFin fin right now, you're going to end up with a settlement where people are getting paid 15 cents on the dollar, both the legitimate and the illegitimate cases. The good cases and the not-so-good cases are going to be paid because of that particular dynamic. And so, again, I think plaintiff's lawyers, defense lawyers, plaintiffs, defendants, Scientists for the ambiguous science, certainly that's one of the factors in FinFin, as uh, Business Week has pointed out, Uh, also in the uh, ILO rating and analysis, uh, and the leaders of the claims resolution facilities, I think all contribute to uh, what is uh, indeed a problem, uh, although I'm not certain uh, it's terribly different from the fraud we see in lots of other contexts. Thank you very
3: much. Thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me to be here today. Um, can I get the screen flip? Um, I'm certainly not here to um, take issue with the, uh, the proposition that there are problems and abuses that occur in our litigation system. Um, those abuses and those problems exist on the plaintiff side as well as the defense side. They consist in individual cases and they consist in mass torts. Um, I do take issue, however, with the attempt to take the experience of Judge Jack's hearing and say that should be applied to all mass torts and it should be specifically applied to asbestos as if we don't have a 20-year history. Um, keep in mind that what Judge Jack's was dealing with was she was the MDL judge and she was holding a Daubert hearing on the um, adequacy of the medical testimony to meet the medical standards. <clears throat> and it was in that context that the discovery that was allowed was done. Uh, remarkably, if you go back and look now, the plaintiffs requested discovery uh, in that case uh, to do discovery on uh, Dr. Gitlin, who's one of the articles that uh, Mr. Brickman relies upon. And the judge found and the party stipulated that there should be no discovery with Mr. Gitlin because his article was irrelevant. Yet when Judge Jax issued her final opinion, she quotes the Gitlin article several times and, and puts weight in that. <clears throat> so you've got to take the context of what was happening down in Corpus in a Dalbert hearing. And what I, as I understand it, and I had no cases there, I was not involved there, but as I understand it, she basically said that for purposes of diagnosis, these doctors' diagnoses do not meet the acceptable medical standards, and she sent the cases back to be dealt with. She did not say that the, the uh, victims did not have a, a silica disease. She did not make any findings related to individual cases, and that is being litigated in individual courts now. Um, <clears throat> but what I don't support and don't accept is the giant leap that um, Mr. Brickman is trying to take from that order. Um, And I don't accept his view that the system does not work. And I want to go back to asbestos a little bit and um, focus on a few things. Remember, screenings in the asbestos world were originally started back in the 40s and 50s and 60s by the asbestos companies themselves, and they did screenings of the workers. And one of the problems that brought on their liability is when they did their screenings, they never told the workers the results of those screenings. And they found heavy incidence of disease, but it didn't disable the workers, so they didn't tell them. So they sent them back to work and let them get more exposure and more exposure. And that's one of the basis of liability that arises. Today, screenings are used by corporate America every day uh, in their health care programs. <clears throat> and we just recently had the results of the screening that was done on 9-11 uh, of the workers and the rescue workers to try to show what the um, effects of that were done by Mount Sinai. The same institution that did some of the early asbestos screenings. So screenings themselves should not be condemned because there's a bad event that occurs. Um, and to say that this is the first time that this has been reviewed is also not an accurate assumption, accurate statement. Um, we did the fiberboard Board class action back in 1992 and '93 in front of Judge Parker down in uh, Tyler, Texas. And at that time, there was litigation that Owens Corning had started against Dr. Pitts and Dr. McNeese, etc., in Mississippi. And there was a lot of uh, debate about the legitimacy of the medical. So Judge Parker said, okay, we're going to do an audit. And an audit was done. And, and randomly, um, medical was selected. And 174 cases were selected. CNA and the plaintiffs agreed to additional B readers to be used. And an audit was occurred, uh, took place. And at the conclusion of that audit, Judge Parker found that 80% of those audited met the requirements of settlement and met a higher standard he himself had set to be eligible to participate. So this this system has worked in the past. Um, We have probably had several thousand individual cases of asbestos disease tried all over the country, federal court, state court. In uh, the Semino consolidation in Texas, we tried 160 individual medical cases, Plaintiffs won some. Defendants won some. These issues about reliability of the doctors have been litigated over and over again. In in Semino, we had verdicts from zero to verdicts for several million dollars because the system worked. And in, you talk about a, a um, <clears throat> manufactured medical facility. In the Semino case, the defendants rented a high school gym, brought their doctors in from out of town, brought their equipment in, went to the hospital, had the hospital change their standards for PFTs and ran new tests on the plaintiffs to introduce it into evidence. And that was introduced into evidence, and it was part of the litigation because it's an adversarial system that works. Um, In Baltimore, the consolidation, we had six individual plaintiffs that were part of that consolidation. Remarkably, at the end of the case, plaintiffs won three on medical, defendants won three on medical. So these issues have, have occurred in the past. And in the asbestos, uh, Professor McGovern talks about the negotiation. In the asbestos practice, in the last 10 or 12 years, there have been negotiations where a defendant will come in and say, I am not going to accept Dr. Ray Heron's diagnosis. And so those settlements have been reached, and they said, we won't submit Dr. Heron. Or the defendants will come in and say, I will pay X dollars on cases that meet this criteria and Y dollars. The system has gauged and discounted those disputes. We rely on B-readers. B-readers are used in in pneumoconiosis cases, particularly in asbestos and silica. But in order to pass the B-reader exam, how often do you have to be right? 50% of the time. The test is set up on a 100-point scale, and if you get 50 points, you pass and you become a B-reader. And yet we criticize that there are inter-reader variability today. So these... Points have been there. And asbestos has got a 20-year history. To say one finding by Judge Jack should now be applied over to asbestos, I think is inappropriate. In addition, I think it's important to understand that the disease asbestosis and how to diagnose it has been subject of many discussions. And it's very true that significant asbestosis can be present without an abnormal x-ray or with an x-ray reading less than one and that's what the medical community tells us. And the American Thoracic Society has studied this over and over again. And in lung disease of that type, a person can lose 25 to 30% of their lung function before it ever gets detected on chest X-ray. So again, to focus only on the B-reading is an appropriate assumption to be made. <clears throat> the other assumption that Professor Brickman builds on is that he refers to asbestosis as a disappearing disease. And that's just not supported by the medical literature. It's not supported by the governmental studies. In 2002, the work-related lung disease surveillance report came out by the government, <clears throat> and they showed that asbestosis deaths among U.S. residents age 18 and over have increased from fewer than 100 in 1968 to more than 1,250 annually in 99, And it goes on. <clears throat> it says asbestosis was designated as the underlying cause of death in one-third of all asbestotics deaths between 1990 and 1999. Now, the response that you'll see from defendants hired experts is, well, people just overreact on death certificates, and if a person tells them they were diagnosed at some point in time with asbestosis, a doctor, a coroner, et cetera, will just put that on the death certificate. Okay, maybe that's true in some cases. But I don't believe in hospital discharges that they're relying on what the patient says. And hospital discharges associated with asbestosis have risen rapidly between 90, 1995 and 2000. So it's not a disappearing disease. So the reality is we have an adversarial system. We have a constitution that created the right to be tried by a jury. And that's what has worked. And it works on both sides, plaintiffs and defendants. And you can criticize the plaintiffs for going out and looking for a doctor that may present a testimonial or an expert report the way they want it. But it happens on both sides of the aisle. Dr. Feingold, a good doctor, he's down in South Florida. He testifies generally for asbestos defendants, and over the last 20 years, make made $20 million just testifying in asbestos cases. It works on both sides. And it's not limited in our, <clears throat> our society to just the mass torts. Oftentimes, People, experts are brought in, and they turn from an an expert of neutrality to someone that decides they just have to become an advocate for a position. And it happens to people that are very smart and people that are very good. And, you know, Professor Brickman, he's testified in the Texas case against the attorney's fees. And instead of giving the ethical opinion, which he did and his testimony was accepted, he goes and refers to it as the great train robbery because he turned over and became an advocate, which is what happens in our system. And it's not by accident that it happens. It's not by accident that we find ourselves where we are today, in the silica situation, because the National Industrial Sand Association decided this is how they were going to try to defend the cases. They wanted to campaign to affect public perception and public relations. And their whole intent was to try to find a way to discredit the cases. And their program was, the B Readers referenced early in this proposal will be targeted with investigative reporters. Where appropriate, we will conduct editorial board meetings and push for statewide editorial support for our issue. We will manage interviews with television and radio stations, including talk radio statewide in each state, and concentrate on media covering the state legislative sessions. We will float the story of the silicosis litigation fraud with other national publications that will pres- resonate it's part of our system, free speech, adversarial system. And the system is working, and it continues to work today. And I don't believe a, an overhaul of the system is needed. I think the system has proven to work. A couple quick comments on Professor Gover, McGovern's comments. The situations that the Professor Brickman talks about have occurred in NDL processes. I believe that our courts have been much too quick to allow the MDLs to get started. They have not allowed the the torts to mature, like asbestos matured for 20 years before it became an MDL. But in breast implant, in mold, and even in silica, without any real history of trials, without the adversarial system working on a one-on-one, it immediately went into MDL, and MDL made it easy to create a tort into a mass tort. I think that's one of the things that should be looked at. Thank you. Thank you.
4: will probably shock everybody that I'm not going to rely on Mr. Rice's charts here. Could you turn that off because actually it looks like I see a train you coming flip. on.
3: Somebody can flip the screen down. He'll cover it for me. If I'd known it that easy to shut you up, I would have had a lot
4: longer. <laughs> I don't know. As I get older and older and older, it's clearly a downward uh, spiral. Well, I'm going to say exactly the opposite. Of it's the called things. gravity. Oh, God, that's junk science. <laughs> See, it happens on all sides. The, uh, I'm going to come out in a somewhat different place from, uh, from uh, Joe Rice because uh, I think that the system isn't working. And I think that Mr. Lester will come back and explain to you why it is that silica do, does apply to the uh, asbestos situation. He already did indicate one reason why that's true, the reason why Judge Jack knew that all the silica diagnoses were uh, illegitimate. One, of, one re- important reason is because they'd all been diagnosed in the asbestos process with asbestosis under circumstances where that just couldn't possibly happen. This is an inherent problem, really, in all kinds of mass tort problems that that are not really handled in an adversarial situation. Uh, And I want to distinguish broadly in a way that I don't think Lester fully does between the process of screening, recruiting people by usually applying uh, in an improper way uh, techniques for diagnosing diseases that are well accepted. And that obviously is what happens with the screening in silicosis and what happens in the screening in asbestosis. It's a little bit different from the sort of typical junk science problem. Uh, where somebody denies gravity like I just did uh, or where uh, the issue is sort of untried scientific data where, where you have experts who are accepted by juries and they're allowed to proceed and testify uh, where there are other authoritative bodies who say they don't have any – they should not be allowed to testify. The court system has been reasonably good in the last few years to try to address those kinds of problems, and that's why we have Daubert hearings. Uh, That's what all of that is for. And that fits the kind of situation that Joe suggested to you is the situation that generally exists, that is, a situation that is fundamentally regulated by the trial. And ultimately, you have the opportunity to go to court and to show that the expert testimony on which your opponent rests does not meet the appropriate standards for admissibility. It should be excluded and the case should be dismissed. That usually happens way far down the road and all too often what really happens is the gatekeeper function is not adequately uh, done and you go to trial and it's up to the jury to make sense of what these various contending experts, which as Joe points out quite rightly are often adversary experts that have long since passed from being doctors into being advocates for their own position, and who have a financial interest, and that's true of both sides, in the positions that they have been consistently taking. And that is the kind of problem that uh, Lester has been talking about. But what about the cases that don't go to trial? That's the overwhelming majority, and that's what makes mass torts a little different from, uh, say, what would happen when brakes fail in an automobile and you have product liability cases, When you have tens of thousands of cases that are generated every year with screenings, typically what happens is that the vast majority of them, not just the usual rates, but almost all of them are settled. And the people who do the screenings know those cases are never going to be tried. They're never going to get to the stage of a doperate hearing in the usual course. They are going to be settled early on. And as a result of that, the use of the adversary system at trial as a way of disciplining what goes on, this loses its effect. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of profit that to be made in settling cases without incurring the costs of bringing them on to trial. And one of the major reasons we have the scandal we do in the mass tort area is defendants and insurance companies are willing to be complicit in that because they can't afford to ensure honesty, Honesty is not the primary objective of the defendant uh, or the insurance company. Uh, if they can get out with less money and tolerate a certain amount of chicanery on the other side, they're prepared to do that. Uh, and a lot of times the defendants have contributed really to what is a systemic problem because it's too darned expensive and too darned risky to actually push things to the point where you have a trial. And when, when that happens and when you know that large numbers of cases are going to be settled on the basis of what are essentially preliminary diagnoses, because usually you wouldn't use Ray Heron if you actually went to trial. You'd find somebody real. But ordinarily, you settle hundreds of thousands of cases without that. And what that means, in fact, is that you can use screening. You can get shaky diagnoses. They're always good enough because the defendants don't have the incentive to go forward and really challenge you. And as a result of that, the adversary system tends to break down in this kind of case in a different way From the way it breaks down in occasionally, and I think Joe is right, only more, only occasionally in situations where the trial can serve as an effective disciplining mechanism. The other problem with trials is the fact that trials focus on individual cases. And there can be debates, and there have been about having mass consolidations and having trials, and you statistically extrapolate the results and so forth. Generally, those haven't gone anywhere. and what At least they, there was a period where they did, but they don't anymore. And there's a big focus at the trial on the individual case. Why is it, for example, that if you're going to have a one-on-one case, that's what's going to trial, that you don't authorize systemic discovery into medical opinions in 10,000 cases? Because it's all a collateral inquiry in most situations. And the very fact that, that it's so expensive and so difficult to do that, puts you in a position where the individual focus of trials it makes it impossible to get at the essence of the problem that Lester is pointing out. You know, if Lester had to go up and show in any one case with an expert on the other side that any one diagnosis that Ray Heron gave was illegitimate, It would be just a battle of experts, and probably it would sort of even out, and the jury would throw up its hands and say, I don't know, both of these guys seem pretty competent. I'm going to have to do my best. But when you know that 99% of the time Ray Heron comes out saying yes, why, that's almost as good as the back doctor and that is never going to get before the jury because you can't ever have in an individualized trial you can't ever have that degree of broad discovery in each individual case you have to be able to go at these on the basis of a uh, on the basis of a more uh, statistical and aggregated uh, basis which requires some kind of an mdl Now, my main focus, which I've gotten about half of my time before I've gotten to, but you'll see it's coming quick, is what do you do from here? And Lester is focusing a lot on the crime and punishment scenario. And I'd like to suggest that one of the first things we should think before we get into crime and punishment is what can the tort system do, what can the court system do to protect itself? And I think that the Silica example has very – are we ready? Not yet. The Celica example has shown some shown some ways of doing that. One is, you have to aggregate for pretrial. You have to do it. because if you don't do it and you don't get all the cases together, there's no way to to do the kind of mass, uh, mass checking that's necessary to deal with massive fraud on a case-by-case basis, completely contrary to what Joe just said, on a case-by-case basis, you never would have been able to, to, uh, to get to the heart of the matter in silica, and you never will be in any case. It's, it doesn't automatically get you there. Obviously, we've had MDLs for a long time, but without aggregation for pretrial, there's no way to do what Judge Jacks did. Secondly, you need to have early disclosure, disclosure of medical evidence and an early attempt in the, in the whole proceeding for defendants to challenge that. That forces that issue that usually is left on to the future that never comes to happen right away. And that's the approach that much asbestos and silica legislation has taken is where you have to meet medical standards. And you have to show that, you, that your medical tests meet the applicable technical standards. And you can debate as to whether or not uh, the medical criteria that are adopted in state legislation is correct or not and about the value of the impairment line and whether you have to be really sick. Uh, Or not, But the one thing that's very difficult to debate is that you have to at least do the required tests in the required way, and you should have to show that you did that right away, and you should have to be be able to withstand a challenge if the evidence is murky in that regard. That's one of the things that the asbestos and silica legislation does, and it has an enormously beneficial impact, potentially, in being able to challenge mass fraud right at the start and to not let it get into the situation that Lester described. You could go beyond that. You could use independent audits uh, much more frequently than than is done. You could create, as part of the general administration of the case, bodies of people. You could outsource this. That would do their own tests, either all or on a substantial portion of the cases that are filed if the mass tort uh, it justifies that. And when so you have an auditing mechanism, which is done by a single administrative mechanism, then you can do things that, for quality control purposes you can never do in the adversary system. Like, for example, as Lester points out in his paper, provide blanks so that you can see what people are doing when, some, when the, what you're looking for actually isn't there. Uh, that is something can systematically done in every kind of hospital and so forth. Uh, it's something that you'd have to organize the tort system to be able to do. And finally, I think courts should be a lot more aggressive than they are in enforcing, uh, in dealing with the lawyers who are an officer of the court, uh, both in referring them to state bar uh, situations or bar discipline in appropriate cases, and dealing with the responsibility that the lawyer has to the individual individual judge. Now, that brings you to the punishment and deterrence. And the one point I'd like to make here uh, is – That while criminal law is hard, and I can talk a little bit later because I don't think it's quite as hard as Lester says, one of the most useful things to do is to enlist Joe. If you have a civil mechanism, sort of like you do in the securities laws, where possibly you have the state bringing civil actions and then you have Me Too actions afterwards, or if you could beef up things like RICO uh, or, or some new statute that would deal with the sort of pattern and practice situations here, what you can use is the energy and the resources and the creativity of the entrepreneurial trial bar which from a business point of view is probably one of the great accomplishments of American democracy and capitalism. You could turn it and use it to create some honesty in that very same entrepreneurial trial bar. And if there's anything that would be a perfect circle, that's what it would be.
1: I'll uh, respond briefly to a number of the points, but obviously I cannot be complete. Uh, uh, just a brief comment on Francis's presentation. I, b- I basically agree with his presentation. I think he un- underemphasized one point, however. Uh, the loose terms that are in effect in the part of the settlements, that's as in the breast implant litigation, which Francis was involved with, um, create opportunities for mass fraud, but the mass fraud is not – the fact that people are applying for compensation, uh, it is that lawyers have the incentive, given the loose criteria for proving eligibility, to go out and advertise 800-type telephone numbers. In effect, that kind of a settlement, as it was also in in Fenfen, gives lawyers a blank check and says, here, go out and write in six or seven or even eight figures. Um, And they do. The market works. If you create incentives, which is what these settlements do, to go out and create bogus claims, you will get bogus claims by the tens of thousands. Um, Joe Rice, um, I think um, his fundamental point is the system is working. I certainly think it's working for Mr. Rice. (laughs) But I think there's pervasive fraud in the system. I think the system is beyond broken. I'll, I'll respond to a couple of the points. Uh, I can't respond to all of them. Uh, the most fundamental point, to start at the very outset, his point is that what Judge Rice uh, Ju- uh, Judge Jack said with regard to silica litigation stays in Corpus Christi. Um, in fact, what she said about silica litigation applies chapter and verse, with no exception whatsoever to asbestos litigation. She confirms all of my findings which I wrote about asbestos litigation using some of the same language about how the medical diagnoses are made, how the medical histories are taken by the lawyers, which truly offended her because she's a nurse married to a cardiologist and that's what got her set off from the very outset that medical procedure was being so abused. Uh, You have in asbestos litigation the same doctors that Judge Jack looked at, the same B-readers, the same screening companies, the same modus operandi. The only difference between silicosis and asbestosis litigation is the prefix. The suffix is the same. Everything is identical. And you have the same x-rays, because it's cheaper to do one x-ray and read them twice than to do two x-rays. Now, something about screenings. Mr. Rice, mixed together screenings for medical purposes and screenings for litigation purposes. Never the twain shall meet. Screenings done by health by, by healthcare institutions, whether it's the, the X-ray truck that does breast screenings for, for breast cancer, or the, the PSA screenings, or a variety of other medical, or the employer screenings. These are medical screenings done for medical purposes. The screenings done for litigation purposes in fenfen, in breast implants, in silica, in asbestos have no health benefit intent whatsoever. They're purely for the purpose of generating litigation documents to support litigation. And who do I quote on that? The screening companies who say, We do not provide any health services. One of the largest of the asbestos screening companies was called Most Health Services. Most health services said it provided no health services. And it said so in a deposition, in a sworn deposition. So when you use the word screenings, it is important to understand the distinction between medical purpose screenings and litigation screenings. Um, There was some mention about uh, pulmonary function tests Uh, and some of the litigations. I don't have time to go into it in detail. Let me just come to the conclusion. Pulmonary function tests are a way of determining the degree of impairment. This is very important because it's dollars. The more, if there's impairment, there's a lot more dollars. Billions of dollars in the aggregate, if you can show impairment. Impairment is done, shown by uh, administering uh, these PFTs, pulmonary function tests. Virtually The the overwhelming percentage of pulmonary function tests done in asbestos litigation, or for asbestos litigation, are done by the screening companies, by RTS, by HealthScreen, by PTS and and the other screening companies. They find, according to my data, at least 80% of the people they looked at impaired. And yet, when neutral uh, experts look at that data, they find a tiny percentage at most impaired. This was the subject of the Pitts litigation that Mr. Rice uh, mentioned. The Pitts litigation showed that in that particular screening company uh, was engaged in conscious fraud. Unfortunately, however, the case was settled as part of the broad settlement that Owens Corning entered into with the plaintiff lawyers, which included um, ditching all this and and, uh, adverting a, a federal investigation. Now... A brief word about the death certificates and the hospital discharges. Mr. Rice said, um, noted that the the, the response about death certificates is that there are no diagnoses on death certificates. There is simply a, a, a physician or a coroner writing in what did he die of. And if he had asbestosis, that is to say, if he was screened 10 years or 20 years earlier, and he was paid... $30,000 Thirty or $40,000 from 8 or 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 different defendants, then, of course, he had asbestosis. Um, and so upon death, the family will say he had asbestosis, and that shows up um, on the death certificate. Now, Mr. Rice says, but surely, even if that's true, you can't believe that hospitals are relying on what patients says for hospital discharge data. The fact of the matter is, is, that is exactly what happens with hospital discharge data. Um, first, let me tell you what I, I looked into this, and uh, an astounding fact, I think. Um, between the period 1990 and 2004, approximately 400,000 non malignant claimants came forth and filed claims with the Manville Trust. They also filed claims with a dozen or 15 other trusts and scores and scores and scores of other defendants. The typical plaintiff today would sue 60, 70, 80 defendants. But 400,000 claimants claimants times 30, 40, 50, 1990 to 2004 said, I have asbestosis or at least a non-malignant lung disease. How many hospitalizations took place in that 15-year period where the primary cause of the hospitalization was asbestosis? Here's the number. You're all seated. That's good. It is statistically insignificant. That is to say, it's under 1%, and the federal agency accumulating this data listed at zero. Technically, it's more than zero. It's like each year there might be 50, 60 total, not 50, 60,000, but 50, 60, but it's so statistically insignificant that when it shows up on the data as zero. Now, how does it get in there as a secondary diagnosis, which is what it does do? Well, if you understand how hospitals code, these are ICD-9 codes, how they ICD-9 code, it's not done by doctors. Doctors cost a lot of money. They don't spend their time doing ICD-9 codes. The hospital has an administrator who upon discharge ICD-9 codes from the file. Now, if the admitting doctor is the family doctor and the patient that was admitted had been screened for asbestosis 10, 15 years ago and had gotten money, well, he goes to his family doctor and he says, what's up? I'm told I'm sick. The family doctor says, you're not sick. But he writes it down in the record because he was told he had asbestosis. That's how it gets into the hospital disorder. Uh, the uh, hospital discharge. Um, So I I can elaborate on that more. In fact, I probably will in some future publication. But the evidence is exactly contrary to what Mr. Rice suggested is. The evidence overwhelmingly indicates the disconnect between 400,000 claimants in that 15-year period and virtually no primary diagnosis of of asbestosis in hospitals. Now, Let me try to sum it up. I think that if corporate executives did what doctors, screening companies, and lawyers have been doing in asbestos, silica, fen-fen, breast implant litigations, most of them would either be on trial now or in jail. Thank you. Thank
0: you all for your presentations and for keeping more or less on time. Uh, we're going to turn it over to questions uh, and answers. I think I will limit myself to a preliminary comment, which is to say the I hope we don't think of this as the adversary system being on trial or class actions being on trial or contingent fees being on trial, If you have doubts about those institutions, I suggest you visit a civil law country or a common law country such as the United Kingdom that doesn't have contingent fees and class actions and see if you can find a functioning civil justice system. I've been unable to do so in anything like what we recognize as a a functioning system. Obviously, however, the system wasn't built to carry these mass loads, and it it has had a great deal of difficulty adapting because the mass cases have created incentives that are quite different than the ones that we associate as a healthy part of our institutional arrangement, the contingent fee incentive and so on. And I hear that in the comments here on both sides. We're talking about incentives and arguably perverse incentives and incentives to do things that would be considered shady or fraudulent in any other context and maybe should be in this. So with that said... um, I will turn it over to whomever has the first question, sir.
5: I wanted to ask Mr. Rice a little bit about uh, this concept of the adversary system. Uh, my name is Larry Morel, by the way. and I'm, I'm with Wiley Ryan Fielding and a former insurance commissioner. I wanted to ask him about the adversary system. We have the adversary system. Jones, Judge Kutberg said, it's one of the glories of our legal system, and there's no doubt about that. But... Uh, should it be an adversarial issue what kind of disease a person has Uh, should that be something that is that is uh, litigated through partisan experts Uh, if there was a question about whether the plaintiff were alive or dead is that something that should be testified to by witnesses on each side uh, I, I would think the answer to that would be but no. I mean, he's either alive or he's dead, and I, so the question is: Is he sick or isn't he sick? Is that something that should be done through an adversary system? Is that the way it should work, or should there be some some factual uh, uh, way of determining that kind of thing?
3: If there, w- I don't know. If, I don't know if this is owned or not, but. <clears throat> If there were an accurate factual way, maybe. But the problem is in the type of diseases that we've been talking about, even in mold situation, there's a lot of variables as to the etiology of the problem. People will say, yeah, they're short of breath. but well, they were cigarette smokers. You know, they worked in an industrial environment. And it's there are going to be different opinions as to what the cause of that was and what the proximate cause was. It's not always a black and white situation. So, yeah, you do have different doctors that give different weight to different findings. Um, In an asbestos context, mesothelioma, most doctors would say, if you've got an occupational exposure to asbestos and you've got mesothelioma, then you have, that is a signal of cause and effect. Yet there are doctors that will come into court every day and testify that this is just an unexplained mesothelioma.
0: I think, Joe, you slipped over the question and went to causation. The underlying question is whether there's a medical condition.
3: Am I correct about that? Whether there's a medical condition as to which causation can be an issue. The medical condition is usually not what's debated. It's the cause of the condition. I don't think that there's a debate, in many cases, not a debate as to whether or not the person's got a respiratory problem. It's what is the cause of that. It's not, is it asbestosis, is it silica, or is it co-worker's pneumoconiosis, or is it emphysema? But the fact that they've got a breathing problem is not a debated issue. Mr. Brickman, you agree with that?
1: Well, I think that's quite contrary to what takes place in asbestos and silica uh, claiming where the, the real issue is, is there disease? Doctors are finding disease who are paid to find disease. That's virtually a quote from Judge Jack. Um, but, in fact, this is phantom disease. There was a phantom epidemic of silicosis in Texas and uh, Mississippi, more silicosis claims in two or three years than it occurred, than all the hospitals in the United States had treated since the beginning of time. Um, and she called it a phantom uh, a- epidemic. And we had a phantom epidemic of asbestosis. Uh, uh, first, first we had a phantom epidemic of plural plaques and then when uh, the Georgine settlement said that plural plaques going forward were worth zero. Overnight, the doctors switched from finding pleural plaques to asbestosis, suggesting that both kinds of diagnoses were bogus. Uh, and the the issue is is there disease here? And uh, medical science, I think neutral medical science, uh, finds that uh, that there is no disease 90 or 95 percent of the time with regard to the claims that are brought. Mr. Kamenar?
6: Paul with the Washington Legal Foundation. I, I think there's a general consensus that there is a problem. The question is, how should the system work? Um, I know there's been a number of states, Florida, Ohio, Texas, that have had some reforms here requiring medical evidence to be required in these cases, and the number of claims have gone down. Um, and, and Professor Brickman talked about some of the criminal processes that might cure the system, but in terms of what, how the system should work, aren't we really say What should the victims be getting in terms of compensation? If they are injured, should they be kept compensated? There are huge transaction costs in the litigation system. Uh, litigation costs, huge attorneys. Uh, what about something in terms of uh, like the black lung disease for coal miners having simply with these kind of masks towards a government agency of some sort or some kind of body where you don't have to pay, or the transaction costs can be greatly reduced, and just give the money to the victims who are really injured. Of
0: course, uh, transaction costs is what we do, right, as lawyers? <laughs> right. Mr. Hanlon, do you want to address? Uh, we this? are transaction costs. We are.
4: I'm so delighted. That, is this? I'm so delighted that you raised that because for the last several years I've been attempting unsuccessfully to advocate exactly that sort of thing. Uh, I think there, as many of you probably know, the Senate has been considering something called the Fair Act uh, that has received uh, a great deal of bipartisan support and a great deal of bipartisan opposition. And at this point, the opposition is bigger than the support. Uh, or at least it's enough to block things in the Senate, which is counts to the same thing. I, I think that's exactly right, that we have reached a point with asbestos litigation. I don't know that this is could be extended to all mass torts or even to silica, but I think we've reached a point with, with asbestos uh, litigation that uh, – The criteria are relatively clear. In fact, pretty soon we're going to be in a situation where there are billions of dollars available uh, outside the tort system through the bankruptcy trusts, all of which are going to be operating one way or another through a set of medical criteria that are similar to the kinds of medical criteria that would be used under the Fair Act or any kind of program uh, that did that. The advantage that an administrative program has is twofold. One is is that, that it has the capability. I'm not saying that it necessarily will or that the criteria in the Fair Act are perfect or whatever. But an administrative program has the ability to supervise the quality of medical data, in a way that uh, can't very easily be done in the tort system. You really have to push tort concepts to be able to do that. But as I was describing earlier, one of the standard ways that NIOSH would recommend doing these things is by having everybody who's, who's doing certain kinds of tests get blank samples from time to time. And there are statistical ways of being able to identify whether things are working the way they're supposed to. And those things are very difficult to accomplish in an adversary situation. Um, the second thing is, is is obviously the transaction costs. The potential for savings in trans- transaction costs is just tremendous. Under the Fair Act, uh, attorneys' fees would be limited to five percent in normal cases, most cases. Uh, and if there's a successful appeal, they could go higher than that to a, a reasonable fee. And for the kind of program that's set up, where you where you have fairly objective standards, uh, in almost all cases that would be more than enough. And if the if the plaintiff's attorney are limited to 5%. Just think of the poor defense attorneys, which are largely eliminated altogether. Uh, And we all need to sort of reinvent ourselves, and maybe we could go help Mr. Rice uh, litigate against the abuse of people and other mass torts. Uh, But, you know, I think asbestos is a little different there. There is no other thing that's exactly like asbestos or that even could make a similar kind of claim. Uh, for uh, some sort of an administrative mechanism. But in my view, an administrative mechanism would be far superior in in that instance.
2: Professor McGovern? Uh, Two comments, and
4: with a prelude being I've written articles in favor of an
2: administrative approach in in the asbestos context. First, uh, are you going from the frying pan into the fire? That is to say, if we're talking about scientific issues, having hearings in front of Congress and Congress setting the criteria and the amounts of money, is that better or worse than the adversarial system? The history of black lung has not been a, a really happy one. When Democrats have been in control of Congress, the amounts of money go up and vice versa. So that's, that's something to be careful about. And second, uh, Joe Rice used my favorite word in the English language. It got me tenure, uh, maturity. Uh, there are certain kinds of, of torts, certain time, types of harms where we know pretty much there is liability, there is a particular harm, but these immature mass torts, we really don't know the answer to it. And I would err on the side, as, as Judge Ginberg suggested, that the adversarial, adversarial system does a pretty good job on these immature mass torts. The problem really comes to me with the mature ones where an administrative process makes enormous sense.
3: Just one comment on the, in, in, on the FAIR Act, it wasn't an issue of whether or not there should be a decision of, of who gets compensated. It was a home run situation. Bail out the, the industry, bail out the insurance industry, limit the amount of money anyone gets. Even if they died from the disease, you cap them at a million or maybe it was a million and a half dollars. So the, the act went beyond answering the question you posed is should there be some kind of standard as to whether or not one has a disease? And it was into you know take everything and just do a bailout litigation or legislation.
0: Next question. We have time for another? Yes,
3: sir.
5: Hi, uh, Professor Brickman. You made a point that
1: the judge allowed discovery that other judges were reluctant to do so. I um, mean, do you think there should be changes to the rules of discovery so that you can get the same kind? I. Uh, Actually, that was part of my recommendation at, That I at, at, towards the end of the remarks. Uh, when CAFA, the Class Action Fairna- Fairness Act, was being debated, it included a provision called mass actions. As part of the political price to get the legislation passed, most of that section was gutted. But what I'm advocating, I think, as a partial solution to the problem is a mass action provision. That is to say allowing defendants in a mass toxic torque litigation where there are thousands of individual claims in state and federal courts around the country to assemble them into what is effectively a federal MDL proceeding for purposes of a Daubert hearing on the medical and causation evidence. Now, that is what took place in the silica MDL. It was engineered by the defendants. Um, they knew that they were bringing cases before Judge Jack for which there was no proper jurisdiction, and, but it was a strategy that worked. Why it was necessary to do that is because in any individual litigation or a, a litigation, a consolidation of 100, or 200, even 2,000 cases, when the doctors are cross-examined on their diagnoses, and the question is, tell me about your, how many diagnoses you've made beyond those in this litigation of the same type, asbestos or silica? And the answer is objection, irrelevant, sustained. Uh, So you can't get that, the fact that this doctor has found 80 or 90 percent positive when medical science would show 1 to 4 percent, you can't get that into evidence and you, you can't subpoena those records because for a variety of reasons they won't turn them over and that nobody will sustain those I mean motions for protective orders and so on. So the bottom line is you need a strategy. The strategy that worked in silica was the artificial creation of an MDL which worked for the purpose of issuing a report then Judge Jack found she did not have jurisdiction over 99 percent of the claimants and sent them back to state court. She remanded them. But what we need is that kind of a process that defendants can invoke in other mass tort litigations without having to go through the subterfuge that was done in silica. But for that subterfuge, this massive fraud would never have come to light.
0: I think at the end of your paper you suggested that there be more attention to um, to attorney disciplinary procedures and, and that sort of thing. Is that a substitute or a supplement?
1: No attorney has ever been disciplined for any infraction of ethical rules with regard to asbestos litigation. If the ethical rules, if every state's eth- rules of ethics were to be amended to say these rules do not apply to asbestos litigation, there is no difference whatsoever that would take place in what goes on in the world. Um, I, that sounds like an outlandish statement. If you think so, I've written an article on the subject. What about the I,
0: doctors? Uh,
1: no doctor. Has ever been disciplined, with one exception that I'm aware of. Doctor Ordig in, uh, in the in the uh, mold litigation was disciplined or suspended, but the hundreds and hundreds of other doctors, I called it a never go to jail card because they can say I see it, you don't. It's a matter of opinion. I see it ten thousand times when you don't. I see it. I, that sounds like an outlandish statement. If you think so, I've written an article on the subject. What about the I,
0: doctors? Uh,
1: no doctor has ever been disciplined, with one exception that I'm aware of, Dr. Ortig, in the uh, in the, in the uh, mold litigation, was disciplined or suspended. But the hundreds and hundreds of other doctors, I called it a never-go-to-jail card because they can say, I see it, you don't. It's a matter of opinion. I see it 10,000 times when you don't. I see it 50,000 times and you don't. Uh, and And so far, no indictments. And I think the reason is because Uh, The the prosecutors are concerned that they cannot prove beyond the reasonable now fraud, which is a a Sienta requirement, um, when the the basis for the proof will be other medical testimony or other scientific testimony, the so-called battle of the experts.
0: Professor Brickman, the the medical societies don't have to prove fraud. They have to prove unfitness to practice.
1: Well, the medical societies are unfit to make that determination. Ah. (laughs) They, They do not consider it within their purview to discipline doctors on the basis of fraudulent diagnoses.
3: Keep in mind, in, in the pneumoconiosis area, silica or asbestos, when we talk about the ILO, the 1-slash-O, when a doctor says, I read this film as a 1-slash-O, that doctor's saying, I think it's abnormal, but I would agree that somebody else could legitimately read it as normal. So when you have a 1-O, he's saying, I think it's normal, but, you know, Lester would say it's normal. And that's, that's exactly what that's saying.
1: But he knows that he is saying one slash zero, that is, I see it abnormal, but others could see it as normal. The one, I see it, the, the zero, maybe not. He knows it's not done in the abstract. It's not done, he gets something in the mail and he does this. He knows it's part of a process, the end result of which is going to be fraud. He knows it's part of a process where it goes, that that ILO reading goes to a doctor, maybe himself, maybe another one of these doctors, who's going to say to a degree of medical certainty, it's asbestosis. And then that's going to generate a settlement. And that's going to generate major fees for, those, um, doc- for the B readers, who, who demonstrate, if anything, that the market works. Because it seems that only the B readers that find positives get hired. Not surprising. And the market works very efficiently here
0: last question uh, Ted
6: Frank, AEI. Uh, one of the ironies of the Judge Jack decision was that she, first she held the Daubert hearing and then she determined that she didn't have jurisdiction and if she had done it the other way around, there wouldn't have been a Judge Jack ruling. I'm wondering if, if uh, that's an argument for expanded federal jurisdiction or if uh, Any of the panelists have any
0: comments on that? By the way, that's exactly how Marbury versus Madison is structured. (laughs) (laughs) All the answers are given, and then the determination is no jurisdiction.
4: (laughs) Uh, um, And no appeal. Therefore, no appeal. (laughs) Any uh, comments? Yeah, I have just a brief comment. I I think actually that that the sense, and I think this is part of Lester's proposal, is that sensible provisions for expanding federal jurisdiction in these kinds of cases would be helpful. Um, now I say that with with due regard to the fact that judges when they hear that tend to be get palpitations because these are not the kinds of cases that uh, typically it has been traditional that the judicial conferences like to, to see in the federal system. And you can debate whether the existing asbestos M D L has has been adequate or not, but what it gives you the ability to do again is to be able to deal with all of this on a uh, on a single basis where you where you can deal in an aggregate basis on what is essentially an aggregate tort, and you can do that a little better than you could do in uh, in state cases, and probably with less uh, with less forum shopping that might prevent you from being able to. Uh, uh, to really treat this in the serious way it deserves.
0: Last word goes to Professor McGovern.
2: I'm not aware of any mass torts that, that would not be in federal court as well, and I would argue that it's really a function of the individual judge. Asbestos in and, 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 and the MDL was treated very, very differently, same jurisdictional issue, but treated very differently because of the difference in the judge's.
0: Thank you all. I think this proceedings a tribute to the Federalist Society of Lawyers Division, Dean Reuter, and uh, thank you all. Thank the panelists with me, please.